the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website and your host for the CU at the Game podcast. Welcome to the official start of Colorado Football 2021. As fall camp opens, it's time to take a unit-by-unit look at the Buff roster. Brad Geiger will be with me, as always, and we are joined for this podcast by a Buff fan with even more seniority than either of us, Neil Langland. Together, we will parcel out how the quarterback race looks to play out, how the CU coaching staff will try and utilize the talent at running back and wide receiver, the annual question as to whether C will finally utilize the tight end position, and how, at the end of the day, it all comes down to how well the offensive line can come together to make the buff offense a force to be reckoned with. We will then turn our attention to the national story of the summer, the defections of Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC. The unexpected move by the Longhorns and Sooners will only be the first of many in the coming months and years, and we'll try and sort out what this power play will mean to Colorado and to the Pac-12. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite site. Once the season starts, we will be posting new episodes weekly, and we want you along for the ride. Colorado seems to have all the pieces in place for a successful season on offense, assuming Quality quarterback play can be obtained. Will J.T. Shrout or Brendan Lewis make it happen? Let's find out. Okay, and we are back. We're going to talk a little fall camp, and we're going to talk a little bit about expansion in 2021. I am joined, as always, by one Brad Geiger hanging out in Highlands Ranch. How's Brad doing today? Brad is doing well. It is the end of a lengthy week. Glad to be talking to you. Very good. Well, we have a, a special guest for this podcast, one Neil Langlin from Denver. And Neil, I think you go at least as far back as the national championship seasons. Do you go all the way back to baby blue uniforms and Chuck Fairbanks? Or what's uh, what's your CU story? Well, I go back even further than that. Um, my first CU game involved Joe Romig and Gail Widener. If that dates me, that was back in the late oh, 59, 60, 61 period and have been a Buff fan ever since then. And I've enjoyed all the success and all the good times at Folsom Field over that time. And I'm looking forward and, and I'm flattered to be in the company of you too for this podcast. 
Very good. Thank you. Well, uh, let's jump right into the start of fall camp. We're going to talk about the offense today. And, of course, you can't get anywhere on the offense without talking about the quarterbacks. There aren't too many bodies to talk about. As it is with CU has exactly three scholarship quarterbacks heading into fall camp, a transfer sophomore, a COVID freshman, and a true freshman. So depth is not exactly the, the strong point for the quarterback roster. Brad, who you, who you got? You got JT Stroud. You got uh, Brandon Lewis. Who's your guy? I think given how the college game has evolved, I think Brandon's game, probably his, his athleticism, his speed, is a little bit more adapted to how the college football game is going now, particularly with Carl Durrell looking at it. So I would give him the slight edge going into camp. I think Shroud's more of a drop back and throw guy. Um, now everybody's more athletic than they used to be, but I would think that both familiarity with the system and those particular talents is going to lead to Brandon being the starter. Okay. Well, Neil, let me give you some quotes here. This is from Darren Cheverini, our offensive coordinator. And this is talking about Brandon Lewis. You saw flashes in the bowl game with Brandon Lewis of being a real dynamic quarterback, being able to run the ball as well as throw the ball and get yourself out of trouble. And with regards to JT Shroud, he said, JT flashed some really good things in spring ball. He's got a strong arm. He's got a really good touch, throws a good deep ball, and has a good presence. Can you read anything in the tea leaves there about uh, what Jaron Shiverini is looking at in terms of a starting quarterback for 2021? You know, it sure sounds like he's leaning towards routes, especially with the, the presence remark in terms of wanting an experienced hand to be able to read defenses and get the ball to the right receiver or to switch off to a run play as needed. I agree with, with Brad that certainly Lewis has greater athleticism and more upside based upon what I saw in the spring scrimmage. But a lot of this depends, I think, on how well the offensive line is, is shaping up. If they're strong, then I think you could go with Shrouds and and be okay. If they're not that strong or if the play calling is such that they have long developing pass plays, then I think Lewis is your guy. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really excellent point. And if, you know, a Shroud is the kind of guy who could really thrive if the running game's working. And we can make if and the and the play pass or the, or the run pass can delay the rush, then I think and Shroud's probably going to be more accurate, particularly on the crossing and the short patterns. Yeah. He's probably going to be a better thrower into his zone. And I would expect that if the defense comes along and does not put the offense into into holes, then I think Shroud could probably be uh, a good game manager and would protect the football. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that Lewis has enough experience to know when to take a chance and when to eat the ball. Yeah. Well, I don't think you can get too much out of the, the tea leaves in terms of what uh, was said by head coach Carl Rell at the Pac-12 Media Day. He did say it's a two-man race between Brendan Lewis and J.T. Stroud, not that anybody I think was really looking at Drew Carter being a factor in 2021. Uh, they're both very qualified. 
said everybody in the offense really thoroughly enjoys both of the guys under center. It's a competition with a two, two man race with those two. When will we make a determination? That'll be somewhere in the middle of training camp. Well, you'd certainly think that that would make sense. You're going to have a couple more weeks. You're not going to start game planning for UNC slash Texas A&M until mid-August anyway. So you're going to have both of those quarterbacks certainly give their opportunities to win the starting job. Now, when I was talking with Associate Athletic Director Lance Carl in the last podcast, he threw a curve, and I actually asked him twice to make sure I heard it right, that he thought that both players would be playing in the Northern Colorado game. Any thoughts on having two quarterbacks play in the opener against the Big Sky Conference team? Brad? That would have to be the last game, wouldn't it? I mean, again, because they're not the same quarterback. We're not testing which is the better run-pass option. We're not testing which is the stronger arm. If by UNC we don't know what kind of offense we have, then we have a problem. That's a coaching problem. You have to decide somewhere halfway through, are we going to you know, do play action or are we going to throw deep? Are we going to do everything we can to protect the quarterback? Or are we going to be a multiple function run team? I don't see working that out during UNC. So it would not be my favorite to make that decision. <laughs> yeah. How about, how about you, Neil? You in favor of giving both quarterbacks the opportunity to play some in Folsom field before we, uh, take on Texas A&M in Mile High Stadium? You know, in an ideal world, if CU was otherwise on strong footing in every other aspect of its team and roster, I would say perhaps it wouldn't hurt. But I think they have such a thin margin for error that they have to decide and get their number one guy prepped and ready to go. And that UNC would just be a big scrimmage for that guy getting him ready for A&M. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree. I, I think that you want to get this starter, whichever one it turns out to be as much time under center or in the shotgun, as it were, as possible before you hit the Texas A&M game, you wouldn't want to. Yes. I understand that you want to decoy Texas A&M as much as possible you hopefully will have a three touchdown lead in the first half against UNC. So you don't have, you can keep it vanilla. Don't have to show Texas A&M a whole lot in terms of preparation. But the other day on the PAC 12 network, I'm one of six people on the planet that still checks out what's on the PAC 12 network. They had the PAC 12 and 60. They had the UCLA game from last year. They had the opener from last year. And I didn't remember this, but the opening series of the second quarter against UCLA out trots Tyler Lytle. So you'd scored 21 points in the first quarter against UCLA, part of it because of turnovers, but 21 points in the first quarter, Sam Neuer had three touchdown drives and one punt and four series. And yet the first drive of the second quarter, there's Tyler Lytle. And the commentators were talking about how they had talked with the coaches and they said that, they, you know, Tyler Lytle had earned the opportunity to get out there. And of course the buffs take over near midfield, go three and out. Part of it was the fault of a holding penalty. So it wasn't Tyler's fault, but I thought it kind of killed the momentum of the moment. And I was all apparently in the name of he had earned it. And it gives some credence though, to the idea that they are going to have both quarterbacks play some 
against Northern Colorado. It doesn't sound like that's going to be a surprise. Well, well, you would have to, I agree, you'd have to have every other bit of the offense tuned up to make that kind of big a change. Yeah. Well, that certainly seems like, you know, the big question mark, and hopefully no one gets injured because, again, we only have three scholarship quarterbacks. God help us. But the rest of the offense does seem to have most of its pieces in place. Um, let's move to a more solid unit. That would be the running backs. Of course, we have the returning Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year in Jarek Broussard and the 2019 leading rusher for the Buffs and Alex Fontenot is going to be back. And, of course, you've got our four-star 2020 recruit in a shot, Clayton. So this was one unit that everybody seems to have consensus that CU is pretty well stacked in. Brad, can the uh, coaching staff find enough carries to keep uh, three running backs happy, or is this going to be a Jerick Bruchard show in 2021? It is going to be feed the beast. Broussard is a guy who gets stronger. There is no doubt in my mind that the other people will get to play. The other guys will get to play. But this is not going to be a one-third, one-third, one-third. This is not going to be a 60-40. I would imagine Broussard getting 70% of the carries. Um, Now, he's not a receiver out of the backfield. We may not see him a lot on third and long. We would hope that one of the other two can do more of that. But on first and second down, I think you're going to see Jarek Broussard doing what he does best, and that's hitting the hole, getting those extra yards. And they say he's more explosive this year, one more year after the knee injury, after the knee surgery. Right. So, Neil, I'll give you this quote from, again, offensive coordinator Darren Cheverini. They extrapolated out the full season if Broussard had as many carries for a full season as he had for the half season in 2020, he would have set the school record for carries and beating Phil Lindsay's record, which of course, Phil Lindsay was the pretty much the, most of the offense. Uh, he said last year, I think Jarek did a heck of a job, but in a 12 game season, he probably would have got too many touches. So it certainly makes sense that there's going to be some situational, but when would you take Jarek Broussard out? Is he not good enough on third and one? Is he not good enough on third and long? Where do you see Alex Fontenot? Where do you see Ashad Clayton fitting into the, the rotation? Well, I think that's what lawyers call a compound question. So I'll try to break <laughs> it down into its little components. I'm just a mere economist here, so I'll do my best. I was thinking about the 2001 team and the running backs that they had at that time. They had three or four alternatives in the backfield. And we didn't see much of Chris Brown until late in the season. And I agree with Brad as a general matter. I'm not sure that Broussard maybe is large enough to take the physical pounding over a a full 12-game season. So my guess is that they may try to balance carries not necessarily within a game, but between games where they feel one running back is better suited to attack the opponent's defense. Other than that, I think Broussard is the guy until someone else proves that they're better. The interesting question is going to be, other than Broussard, how do they keep the other two guys happy? And do they make them situational players, like third down slot receivers, things like that? I'm not sure that 30% of the carries are going to satisfy the other two. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I can certainly see Clayton be a kind of a situational because he has a lot more speed, you know, if it's going to be a third and long or something like that, where you want to get a screen pass or something along those lines or draw that he might be better off in the open. And maybe it's a, if there's a 12 play 80 yard drive and we get the ball right back, then that might be an opportunity for Fontenot then to come in and take the next series or something along those lines. But you mentioned the 2001 team. I'll throw some trivia at you because that's what I do. You were both around for the 2001 season. Chris Brown, six touchdowns against Nebraska. Everybody remembers 62-36. What CU running back became the first back in CU history to have a 100-yard rushing game and a 100-yard receiving game in the same game, and it was the week before the Nebraska game? Name the running back. Can you make it multiple choice? <laughs> I think I might be able to hit that one. I know. I think I know who you're thinking of, but I can't remember his name. Well, I'll give you the three main backs. There are actually four. I can't remember the fourth run up now. Tell me, but you had Chris Brown, you had Cortland Johnson, you had Bobby Purify, and there was another back. But I'm going to let you not have to worry about that because I can't remember his name. So it was one of those three had a hundred yard receiving and a hundred yard rushing against Iowa State the week before the Nebraska game. Brad? I read Stewart's article, so I cheated. (laughs) Um, Were I to guess, Chris Brown wasn't the receiver, so I would have guessed Bobby Purify, and I would have been incorrect. I I was thinking of Cortland Johnson. It was Cortland Johnson. If you remember the kind of fuzzy, there was like a 50-yard screen pass that he ran in for a touchdown and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, so that's how he got to his 100-yard receiving, but yes. Came the first back in CU history to have 100 yards rushing and 100 yards receiving in the same game. But I was the one that was going to keep us on task here. Let's move quickly on to wide receivers. CU did lose Maurice Bell to a torn ACL, so not the featured receiver, but one of the receivers. He was third um, in terms of returning receiving yardage and catches from last year. So. I guess, Brett, you want to start this one as well? Are we content with Levante Chenault, Dimitri Stanley, Brendan Rice, et al.? Is this uh, one of the best receiving cores, or is this one still in search of a star? Oh, it is the most talented receiving core we've had since Slash was throwing to Westbrook et al. They are young. They will make mistakes. Uh, You know, Bell was one of the steadier ones, and that's unfortunate to lose him. Everything looks like this is a group of young men who are ready to break out. One of them will become the lead receiver. I mean, I guess we're probably all thinking it's Brennan Rice, but we don't know that. Although the Chenault name should never be ignored. Whoever is throwing the ball should have open people out there if they can get it to them. This feels... Like, and it feels like a tough group. These are not just burners down the field. These are people who are going to come across the middle and make catches for you. Okay. Well, now last year, the same group with KD Nixon was 87th in the nation in passing yards. Neil, I'm going to throw you a quote that Darren Cheverini said, talked about the veteran guy is probably Dimitri Stanley. Now, Dimitri Stanley is a COVID sophomore. And we have three juniors, or had three juniors. Maurice Bell was one of them. 
Jalen Jackson and Daniel Arias are the juniors on the, the roster. Is that uh, a fair statement that we are not relying on our juniors to be productive in this offense? Well, I guess I've become the uh, Darren Schiavarini whisperer here. Um, <laughs> so let me take yet another stab at his what's going on in his head. I thought Daniel Arias, when I first saw him the first couple of years, that he was just going to be amazing. And for some reason, he just hasn't developed. And I'm not sure that they trust him anymore in key situations. My sense is that they're going to concentrate on the three that you mentioned. And not to skip ahead, but combining that with a tight end, that that group is going to get the lion's share of the work. And I think they're different types of receivers so that they'll be able to bury their passing game and have more freedom uh, for more types of routes than they would maybe with the two juniors that you mentioned. Yeah. Well, and another, you know, besides Stanley, Chenault, Rice, there's also Montana Lamonius Craig, who I think has a bright future at the University of Colorado. And, we don't know necessarily about Chenault. You know, he did have some legal troubles. He missed the opener last year because he was suspended, and then he didn't play, opted out of playing in the bowl game. He might not be on the field for the UNC, and we don't know that. There's certainly been no officially word about that, but um, there might be something there that Chenault is not immediately available to be a star. But between Stanley and Brendan Rice and Lamonius Craig, and don't forget, you know, Keith Miller's also a, a freshman, COVID freshman. It does seem like a talented bunch. But in watching some of the games last year, maybe this was, you know, the offense with Sam Neuer because he was more of a game manager, more of a shroud-type quarterback. But it seemed like the Colorado offense was designed to be get it to the playmakers five yards down the field and hope that they do something with it rather than – throw it over the top and try and make long plays with uh, with our speed. Is it just my paranoia, Brad, or do you think that uh, that's kind of the CU offense is uh, our quarterback is not the dynamic 20-yard out type of quarterback, and so we're just going to have a bunch of wide receiver screens and slants and short passes and hope that these guys can make plays on their own? Of the many, many Wonderful things that could be said about Sam Neuer. Cannon for an arm was never a phrase <laughs> applied to him. We've seen this offense the year before try to throw deep and occasionally succeed in throwing deep when Steven Montez did not look like he was trying to decipher Sanskrit. So Chevarini has it in him to run people deep. I do believe last year, first of all, they caught lightning in a bottle. They did not expect, nobody expected Jarek Broussard to be the running back he was. So you have a game manager without a strong arm and a running back who's always fallen forward. It's not surprising that we weren't throwing long a lot. That I don't think is going to be this team. Both Lewis and Shrout are more talented in terms of passing the ball than Sam Neuer was. That's why Sam Neuer is now at, at Oregon State. So I don't think we can draw conclusions from what happened last year. Okay. You, you concur, Neil, that's a, that's a legal term, but I'll see if you, uh, <laughs> you if the economist can handle that one. I've got my law dictionary here. Let me thumb through it. <laughs> uh, I think as the 
whisperer for our OC that much of this is going to fall on him to be creative, not just in the first few games, to be adaptive both within games and as the season progresses. He's going to have to find ways to deploy his receivers in a way that is more effective and more varied than it has been in the past and less predictable than it has been in the past. If he can do that, then this passing game will shine, assuming decent running game defense and offensive line protection. But if the offensive line doesn't come along, we are going to be constrained to throw in those short outs and screens and those slants and the defenses within a couple of games are going to be jumping those routes. Yeah. And I, I didn't agree. It's all going to start with the running game. And if, yes, if Jared Broussard is rushing for five touchdowns, you know, against UCLA, then yeah, the passing game is going to take off that, but at least, and we'll get to the offensive line, but I think that, you know, the recipe or the, the pieces are in place for something that, like that to happen. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what, uh, Neil, I'll let you jump in first on the tight ends. Last year in the opener, Brady Russell led the team in receptions and receiving yards in the UCLA game. And then, of course, he got hurt in the first half of the Stanford game, didn't play the rest of the season. So is this the year? And Brad and I have been talking about this. This has been something I've talked about with Lance Carl for seems like a decade now. Is this the year of the tight end at the University of Colorado? Would If Brady Russell had not gotten hurt, would he have been the leading receiver in 2020? And is there a chance that he could be the leading receiver in 2021? Um, I'll take the question in two parts. I think he had a good chance of being the leading receiver, given uh, the way the offense was structured. Um, this year, I'm not so sure, because I'm I'm hoping that some of the young kids, the COVID freshmen, can come along, and if they don't play as inline tight ends, then they would be okay as a move tight end or as an H and diversify the offense in that way and take some of the targets and perhaps receptions away from Brady. But I think in order for the wide receivers to really get a chance to get open, we have to have a tight end finding the soft spot in the zone or taking a safety out of the coverage. So, okay. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of Brady Russell, Brad, what, uh, I mean, just nothing else. I like his hair and his enthusiasm. He was definitely a leader on the, on the field of play. He was definitely a a hundred percent guy out there on the field. Do you see the the tight ends being a factor and a force this year, or are we going to be disappointed again? Uh, And again, this keeps coming back to the offensive line. If the line can protect without having to put in a blocker at tight end, if we can get the push up front without having to add that extra man, because I love Brady, but he's not a huge body, and he is at best a mediocre blocker. If the offensive line can do its job, then I think Brady, and I agree, some of the, uh, yeah, we have a plethora of tight ends, literally, but there's talent at that position. And there is going to be times we hope on second and five when we play action to Broussard and look up and Brady Russell is running unencumbered through the middle of the field for a 15-yard gain. 
that's the kind of thing that can work. And then you hit a couple of those and then suddenly that safety is watching Brendan Rice go past him. <laughs> so um, again, it comes down to if the offensive line does not need that extra help, I think the tight ends could be a big part of this offense. Fingers well crossed. Go ahead. No, well said, Brad. I, I think that's, that's the key and I'll save the rest of it for the, offensive line segment of the podcast okay well let's get we'll, we'll talk about the offensive line segment now i just did my uh fall cam preview for the offensive line just posted it today so i'm i came away more optimistic than i thought i would uh neil you seem to be a a tad pessimistic about the offensive line with four returning starters and a transfer from ohio state that uh is playing behind you know with transfer out because he's playing behind all americans you worried about an offensive line that basically has five starters coming back from 2020? Uh, well, yes and no. I think that as they have played together over the course of the season, they were better. But I'm still worried that they're not large enough or quite athletic enough to move some of the big defensive lines on their schedule and that they're going to have to resort to bringing tight ends in or having H-backs block. I'm not sure about the kid from Ohio State, and I think the starting left tackle that we had figured in is still hurt and may not be available early in the season. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but I've been disappointed a number of times in how the offensive line has progressed. And I want to go back to Gary Barnett, or maybe it was Bill McCartney, that said the physicality of the offensive line sets the tone for the entire team. And if they can develop into a physical group, then I think things will go much better. And it, that's yet to be seen. Well, um, it was the 23rd ranked offense, uh, rushing offense in the country last year. And yes, Will Sherman has moved on. But again, we get Max Ray coming in from Ohio State. Brad, are you as uh, cautiously pessimistic as, as Neil sounds to be? Oh, there is no harder group to predict than the offensive line because it's so much, not just about individual talent. Yeah. Do I wish they were all 20 pounds larger? Probably. But that said, they can be coached up. If they can play together, if they can trust each other, if they all know what they're doing, I think there is plenty of talent there. I think there is a lot that can be done there. And you know, they're going to have to, we know this team needed to be bigger. We know this team's needs to be stronger. We went and supposedly solved that with a coaching hire. So, I mean, let's see what these guys look like when they get out of the weight room. Well, and, you know, I talked with, you know, Lance Carl, you know, he's singing the praises of Shannon Turley, our new strength and conditioning coach, saying that you don't have to wait two or three years for this to come to fruition, that this is a, a guy that's getting these guys bigger, stronger, better now, and we're going to see it. You think that Frank Phillip, I think he might be the next, well, sure, I think he might be the next draft pick out of this offensive line, but you don't seem to be as enthused. Uh, Colby Purcell at center. Yes, we've got you know some injuries and stuff, but you've got a lot of snaps. You've got 58 career starts coming back. And Max Ray, I mean, you know, he transferred from Ohio State because they were so stacked at tackle that they had an All-American, potential All-American candidate at tackle move to guard 
simply because he couldn't get on the field with the two tackles that they had. So this is a young kid. And, you know, explain to me in the, the world of COVID that Max Ray graduated from Ohio State, transferred to the University of Colorado, and has three years of eligibility left. So this, you know, this guy's already had several years, you know, being beefed up at the Ohio State locker room, strength and conditioning room. And the other four returning starters, where, where are the holes? Do you not like the guards? Do you not like our center? You know, just uh, the unit as a whole is not big enough. My concern is exactly how good the Ohio State import will be. And I'm cautiously optimistic now about him. And Frank Phillip would probably then move back to right tackle. Right. And they would move someone inside then. The offensive line has been a little frail over the last few years, as you mentioned. We've had difficulty, I think, because we're undersized that uh, we sustain injuries. Maybe that's going to be less of a factor. But even though Purcell was out, I thought he was there was adequate substitution for him. So I think there is good depth there. Mm -hmm. But perhaps just the overall level of talent is just not quite there yet. Now, as a practitioner of the dark, dismal science of economics, I am predisposed to pessimism. And <laughs> I just want to say I'm, I'm hoping that they come along. And this is probably the best chance of a good offensive line that we've had in the last five or six years. Uh, what, I mean, one, strangely, one of the best visuals of the year was Chance Lytle being carried off with that broken leg still looking tougher than everybody else on the field. <laughs> um, there, there is, I thought we saw until the bowl game, I thought we saw more want to a little bit more get to in the offensive line than we've been used to. I'd like to think we're going to be a little bit more aggressive. I think there were times in the past uh, where that offensive line has been less aggressive than necessary. And I've always agreed that aggressiveness was vital. So if they're a little bit bigger, if they're a little bit stronger, and bluntly, if they're a little bit meaner, this could be a really good crew. Yeah, and I'm I'm one you know prepared, prepared to eat my hat with regards to Mitch Rodriguez, who was uh, you know seemingly the least impressive hire by Carl Durrell coming out of a high school in Alabama, but give him credit for what he produced. He produced a second team All Pac-12 in Will Sherman and two honorable mentions. Now, of course, it's interesting that the same people that voted two of our returners as honorable mention last year didn't put them in as even honorable mention this year. None of the offensive linemen made any of the preseason all Pac-12 teams. But once again, the proof is in the pudding. And once again, the University of Colorado is going to have to prove itself. And I think we're all in agreement that it starts with the offensive line. And if the offensive line is producing holes for the running game, then we don't have to have a quarterback that's Mr. Magnificent. And if the running game is working because the offensive line is working, then the passing game will work. This nope. is not, I don't think we're inventing anything here. I think this is well known. It's just a matter of execution. We'll know early first quarter of the second game. <laughs> just a question about the offensive line. Are they, would you say more of an offensive excuse me, a, um, a subtlety, a finesse kind of line or a power line? Are they going to use more of a gap offense as they have in the past, or are they going to be more of a zone team? I think it's a transition. 
I think we are the team of the last decade that wants to be the 2001 team. And, you know, because you say we're undersized and don't have the depth and not necessarily the same talent, we're not there yet. So you can't, again, like Brad was talking about with the wide receivers, if you don't have a, a quarterback that can throw the deep ball, you're not going to throw the deep ball. Not because you don't want to, it's just because you can't. And where we are with the offensive line, I think, you know, it's the part about getting meaner and stuff like that. I think that's getting back to the 2001, you know, Gary Barnett style where we're just going to run it down your throat. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we want to do. I just don't know if we can do it yet. Just as a refresher, and this is probably a throwaway, but every year, the Pac-12, every fall, they play some of the good CU games. And there's the 2002 game at UCLA where Chris Brown ran wild, but he had huge holes to run through. And the CU offensive line just pancaked UCLA, just ran right over them. That was, I think, one of the last great performances by a CU offensive line that at least comes to my memory. And that's the sort of thing I'd like to see from them. They yeah. may not be able to do that against everybody, but yeah. once in a while, it be nice to see. And a little piece of awful CU trivia, that 2002 game in the Rose Bowl was the last time Colorado won in the state of California until the 2016 Stanford game. So chew on that one for a little bit. Okay, well, we're running out of time, but I do want to talk a little bit about the national story and at least get started on that. Somehow, within the span of nine days, the rumor of Oklahoma and Texas going to the Southeast Conference went from rumor to fact, and without anybody really knowing about it in advance, which is amazing in the this year era of social media. Brad, you have a, an uncle and an aunt that went to the University of Texas. UT fans, well, they're they're buffs. No, no, they, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Far behind their rooting for CU. Let's okay. let's keep that very, very, very clear. Very, very clear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, the idea of, you know, Texas running off to the SEC, you know, everything says it's about the money and how much more money they're going to make. Texas has more money than God times three. Last figures I saw, 2020, of course, was a, a wash, you know, in terms of income and expenses and things. But Texas, you know, leads the nation. Their budget's two and a quarter million dollars. CUS, for comparison, we're about 90 million, which puts us about in the 50th range nationally. So it goes back and forth between Texas and Texas A&M in terms of income. They don't need any more money. And Texas has not, I think, I saw one stat that in the last five or six years, there, or the last, well, maybe the whole 10 years um, since Colorado and Nebraska left, that they are like fourth or fifth in terms of conference record in the Big 12. So not a dominating a 10-team league, which is supposed to be a two-team league. And now they're going to go and face LSU, Alabama, and Georgia. So why would Texas, that doesn't need the money, put itself through an SEC schedule? What's, where's the logic there? Because something was going to happen. If it, – we have all been waiting for the last few years for the next brick to fall in realignment. 
we knew the SEC was hunting. We knew the Big Ten couldn't remain what they were. The gap between Texas and Oklahoma in most sports and the rest of the Big 12 seemed to be increasing. In the end, yes. First of all, Texas's optimism that they're always going to be the best football team around has endured despite actual facts. Well, I thought you were talking about Nebraska there. Okay. Yeah. yeah same thing. <laughs> In some ways, they're the same school, although Nebraska doesn't have the money. Texas and Oklahoma clearly decided they'd rather lead than follow. And yeah, you can say nobody needs more money. They always think they need more money. And the next, they needed to do this in, to get ready for the next round of negotiations. And in three years, none of this will be the same. And I guess Texas and Oklahoma decided that they'd rather lead it and start the process rather than figure out where they were going to end up. Yeah, I believe the Oklahoma, uh, if it was the AD or the president said something along the lines of, if you're standing pat, you're falling behind. You know, some words to that effect. Uh, Neil, I have you put on your Oklahoma Sooner hat. Now, as opposed to Texas, you've been dominating winning league title after league title after league title in a 10-team league. You have a clear and direct path to the college football playoff every year. You basically have to beat Iowa State slash TCU slash Baylor slash Texas or whichever one of those four happens to be good that year. And then you walk through the rest of your schedule and you get into the college football playoff as the Big 12 champion. Why would Oklahoma want to walk away Again, not needing the money. I think they're in the top 10 in terms of income as well. I think they were eighth the last poll or the last printout from USA Today that I saw. Does it is it is it making any sense for Oklahoma to want to make that move? I'm actually quite puzzled by both schools because I thought Texas is would be more suited uh, to going independent. And there was talk about that. And they seem to have the streak. And the idea that they have, or they have the best talent base, they have the most money, they can be the, just like Notre Dame. So going in, I think Brad's right, is they're just trying to cement themselves in a big league for when the next brick falls in the evolution to two or three large power conferences. Oklahoma, I think they're afraid probably to be left alone in the pack, excuse me, in the Big 12 and not have any entree into the Big 12 or the Pac-12 so that they have to follow. Otherwise, uh, they're in a, a ridiculously easy conference. That's the only thing I can think of for Oklahoma. Yeah. Now, as far as Pac-12, of course, Pac-12 Media Day came as this was all coming out. And the new commissioner, George Klyapkov, and I'm getting better at saying that, his quote was, we have a stable, highly successful, and well-positioned membership with a high bar to entry. Given our investment in football and men's basketball, our historic domination of other sports, we do not think expansion is required to continue to compete and thrive. That said, the fallout from Texas and Oklahoma gives us an opportunity to once again consider expansion. We've already had significant inbound interest from many schools. Now, that, of course, would be what you expect the commissioner to say. He's not going to say, oh, my God, the sky is falling. I don't know what we're going to do. He's going to say we're perfectly happy where we are. Now, 
Brad, is is an option for the Pac-12? Well, let's just start off with doing nothing. Can the Pac-12, for at least right now, considering at least on paper right now, Oklahoma and Texas are tied to the Big 12 until 2025, subject to massive buyouts, um, or the dissolution of the Big 12, if you listen to the Big 12 commissioner complaining about ESPN conspiracies, is doing nothing considering half the country is absorbed by the Pac-12. Can the Pac-12 do nothing and get away with it and still be a player in the world of college football? As long as you firmly and 100% are confident that USC, UCLA, Oregon, or Washington would not do something unilaterally. The minute, particularly one of those first three, gets a better offer that they're willing to consider. And, you know, there are already already rumors of USC to the Big Ten, which would be the most geographically strange thing we've done in a long time. But the problem with doing nothing is it requires all 12 of your schools, or at least the big ones, to be completely loyal. There's more money out there for USC than there is in the currently constituted Pac-12. It's probably more money out there for Oregon than there is in the currently constituted Pac-12. There may be more money for UCLA than there is in the currently constituted Pac-12. And so to do nothing means that you have to 100% trust those schools to not put their self-interest above that of the conference. Color me skeptical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we dismiss it altogether, Neil, what about... Jumping to a Pac-16, I'll give you two alternatives. One is to make it an all west of the Mississippi, you know, the Boise State, San Diego State, BYU scenario, or picking four from the irate eight or the little eight, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, along those lines, and forming your own super conference in 2022. Either one of those scenarios appeal to you? Briefly, no. Um, <laughs> let's take the first. Let's take the first place. Is that none of those schools really meet historic Pac-12 admission requirements for a variety of reasons that we'll go into next time, perhaps. But none of those, I think, would add anything. In fact, they would probably lower the average payment to most of the schools. And to the schools in the Pac-12 now, they have just don't have enough national media presence. In terms of picking over the remnants of the Pac of the Big 12, none of those schools meet, I think, Pac-12 criteria either. But the only saving grace of that scenario is that it gets the Pac-12 into Texas, which is a fertile recruiting ground, and that's the only possible advantage even though none of those schools have the cachet um, or the large audience following or the academics that the Pac-12 normally would have. So if they're forced to pick one of those two, the second one is preferable in my mind. Yeah. And probably not going to happen. Like you say that they're not in terms of AAU schools and things like that. And, And I talked a little bit with Lance about this in the last podcast that, when you're already dividing a pie 12 ways, if you're going to divide a pie 16 ways, the pie has to be bigger. Otherwise, what's the point of just dividing the pie 16 ways? You're actually losing money in the proposition. So, yeah, Texas Tech and Oklahoma State, 
BYU, Boise State are not going to bring enough eyeballs, are not going to bring enough cash to the table to justify adding them, even if they were AAU schools. And yeah, at this point, that still seems to be a sticking point for the Pac-12 um, in terms of admission. And we'll have to just wait and see. And unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to leave that as our end point. And we'll talk next time about the Big Ten and AAU schools and whether or not the two Big 12 remnants, I think it's just Iowa State and Kansas, are the only AAU schools in what's left. And of course, Nebraska was an AAU school when it joined the Big Ten. It's no longer an AAU school, but we'll let that one slide for the moment. We'll make fun of Nebraska more next time. But uh, we'll talk about CU having a deal with the Big Ten, maybe some sort of uh, an agreement in terms of scheduling, if not actual merger. There's also talk about, uh, not CU, but the Pac-12, not only joining with the Big Ten, but maybe joining with the ACC and having some sort of an agreement. And yeah, geography is not going to work for women's tennis. You could still have your other conferences for volleyball and whatnot, Mm -hmm. similar to what Notre Dame is doing with the ACC, where you have a separate agreement that you have with Olympic sports than you do have with football. And maybe that is something we'll discuss. And maybe by the time we talk, uh, the Big 12 won't exist anymore. So for now, anyway, before we get to the defense on our next podcast, thank you, Neil, for joining us for the first time. Did, oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You, you. you done good. And Bradford, as always, good talking with you. We will talk again soon. Always a pleasure, my friend. Keep working on that golf game. Great. Thanks, Stu. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Thanks for listening. In two weeks, we will discuss each unit of the defense and we'll return to our discussion of how college football realignment will affect your Colorado Buffaloes. If you have any comments or suggestions for the website or the podcast, I'd love to hear them. Just drop me a note at cuatthegame at gmail.com. With the Buffs donning their pads and getting serious, the 2021 season for the University of Colorado is just around the corner. I look forward to taking that journey with you. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.